I'm again delighted that we have one of these easy, non-controversial passages this morning. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be starting at verse 18, and we'll go through chapter 4, verse 1. You all understand that the chapter divisions and the verses were added much later, and they don't always break at the place that you want them to. So we're going from chapter 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again, to this wonderful book that speaks of the supremacy of Christ. Today we're given hard words, hard to understand and even harder to obey. So we need your Spirit to work powerfully in our lives, both to give us understanding minds and obedient hearts. So by your Spirit, make this passage an encouragement, make it a challenge to us, make us both hearers and doers of the Word. As always, for this we need your grace, give us the desire. To learn from you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you look at your sermon outline, you look at there's a title for the introduction. And if you understand that title listed there, Free Baits, then you know that I'm talking about the popular show, Downton Abbey. Getting some nods of encouragement out there. The series set in the fictional Yorkshire uh, country estate of Downton Abbey, depicts the lives of the aristocratic Crawley family and their servants after the post-Edwardian era in uh, Great Britain. That's approximately 1912 to 1922 under King George V. And we see the great events in the history of that time having a dramatic effect on their lives and on the British social hierarchy in general. And such events depicted throughout this series include the sinking of the RMS Titanic uh, in the first season, the outbreak of World War I, and the Spanish influenza pandemic in the second season, and the interwar period and the formation of the Irish Republic in the third season, which, as everyone knows, will be starting in January. Downton Abbey has received critical acclaim from television critics and has won numerous accolades, including Golden Globe Award for Best Miniseries and a Primetime uh, Emmy Award for Outstanding Miniseries 
and was recognized by the Guinness World Records Organization as the most critically acclaimed television series of all time. The only international television series to receive the highest number of nominations of the Emmy Awards with 27 total nominations in the last two years. The series pits hundreds of years of British aristocracy against the tides of social upheaval and technical uh, progress, all under the shadow of World War I, with the fate of Downton Abbey and its family, both above and below the stairs, uh, always seeming that it's about to come undone. How will it be resolved? And will life be dramatically altered in such a way that the master no longer matters? Robert Crowley is the Earl of Grantham and serves as the stoic English lord who struggles with adapting to this rapidly changing world. And Lord Crowley sees his family heritage, especially the grand country home, Downton Abbey, as his mission in life. And the death of his heir aboard the uh, Titanic means that his distant cousin Matthew, a lawyer from Manchester, a solicitor, as they would say, suddenly is next in line and accepts moving on to the vast estate with its, his uh, even more modern, more socially engaged mother, who time to time tends to clash with his lordship's domineering conservative mother, the Dowager Countess, deliciously played by Dame Maggie Smith. Meanwhile, the butler, Mr. Carson, presides over a staff which serves the family but leads most of their lives in the servants' quarters. And while they're very devoted uh, to those they serve, there are those whose selfishness and scheming do more than simply disrupt the well-oiled inner workings of the estate. Uh, and uh, their mischief seems to escalate. So even the most faithful employees begin to imagine a different life. Now, my favorite character is John Bates. He is the Lord's valet, valet, as they would say, valet. And he is his comrade in arms from the Boer Wars in South Africa. And in a gross miscarriage of justice, he is wrongly convicted of murdering his ex-wife who poisoned herself in an attempt to destroy him. And his new wife, Anna, the maid to the stunningly beautiful Lady Mary, is bound and determined to prove his innocence and free her husband. So in this series, you've got drama, scandal, history, on and off love interests. In the coming season, there will be a death, a birth, and several marriages. We see a family struggling to marry off their three daughters. We see marriages thrive and others fall apart. We see servants and masters trying to figure out their changing roles in a new world. And in fact, the whole of Downton Abbey could be seen as an extended illustration of today's passage from Colossians 3, which deals with marriage and parenting and servants and masters. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul deals with three types of relationships. The relationship between husbands and wives, the relationship between children and parents, and the relationships between slaves and masters. And Paul's intention is not to give exhaustive instruction on any one of these areas, 
but to explain in greater detail, to apply what he stated back in verse 17, which said, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And Paul's main point is this. Whatever role that we're, we're in, whatever uh, role we find ourselves, and often we're in several roles at the same time, and whether we're at home or at work, Paul wants us to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's controversial about this is not that Paul wants us to honor the Lord both at home and at work. What's controversial is how Paul wants us to honor the Lord at home and at work. So let's see what he says. Turn with me to Colossians 3, again starting with verse 18. We're going to look at serving Christ at home. Verses 18 to 21, serving Christ at home. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this, excuse me, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We have the dreaded verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. However, it'd be wrong to stop at verse 18 because Paul balances his instruction uh, to the wives with instruction to the husbands in verse 19, where he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So what does Paul mean by all of this? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us a more detailed explanation in the parallel passage in the letter to the Ephesians. So if you're still squirming, just kind of hang on till I put all the pieces of the puzzle together. To the, in this similar passage in Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. I can assure you, ladies, the news just got better, not worse. Paul says the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. So at that point, we have to pause and ask the question, how is Christ the head of the church? The word translated head here has sort of a, a technical meaning, but it essentially means leader. And Paul says that men are to be leaders in the home, but they're to be leaders in the home in the same way that Jesus is the leader in the church. Now, how is Jesus the leader in the church? Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. I'll give you a minute to get there. It's pretty sure it's in the outline as well. And we have Jesus explaining to his disciples his understanding of leadership. He says there in Mark chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 42. Mark 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's right there in the middle. It says, Mark 10, verses 42 to 45, And Jesus called to him, called them to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now let's return to what Paul said. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Why is the issue of male headship in the home so controversial? I think, uh, for the most part, because husbands have failed to lead their wives in the way that Christ leads the church. Paul's not giving husbands permission to be domineering. He's not giving husbands permission to order their wives around. He's not giving husbands an exemption from doing chores. Paul is insisting that husbands lead their homes in the same way that Christ leads the church. If you think about this, most men are initially afraid of taking a wife and having children, realizing that everything that happens is their responsibility. And whatever goes wrong, they have to fix it. If that means they have to die on their cross to make it good, they do so in order to show the gospel because they love their wives and are in covenant with them. Practically, what this means is a man can never point his finger at his wife. The best he can do is say, honey, we have a problem. Honey, we're going to fix this. Honey, we're going to get through this. And as the crises come, a man who is ahead doesn't push his wife farther away, but he brings her closer because that's what Christ does with us. Think about it. There are many of you, and I've heard many of your stories, you feel the closest to Jesus Christ after you've sinned, repented, been forgiven. Why? Because after you sin, Jesus draws you closer. The husband needs to do that with his wife. I heard a simple example of this from Mark Driscoll. He says, I know of a couple. The wife was driving, talking on the phone, fiddling with the radio, drinking coffee, not paying attention, runs through an intersection, totals the car. Boom, car's gone. She comes home. She knows she's at fault. She's the one who totaled the car. She comes home and she's thinking, oh man, my husband is not going to be happy about this. She gets home, looks at her husband and says, I got in an accident, I totaled the car. First question he asks, are you okay? She says, yeah, I'm okay. Second question, he says, well, what happened? So I wasn't paying attention. I ran the intersection, got in the accident, totaled the car. And then she says, I'm sorry, you know, I'll get a job, I'll make up for it if I have to, I'll go without a car, I'll find a way to fix this. And he looks at her and says, honey, that's okay. That's my responsibility. I'll take care of it. I love you. I'm glad you're okay. Next time, please just keep your eye on the road. I forgive you. I love you. And I'll take care of it. I'll figure it out. I'll call the guy. I'll figure out the insurance. I'll buy the new car. I'll work extra hours, whatever. I'll take care of it. And my question for you is, does that guy need to pull out all the verses on submission? to get her to respect him. No way. Men only need to use the verses on submission when they're not being respectable. If a man is respectable, the woman respects him. And as he loves the woman, she becomes more lovely. It's why Paul, in these passages on Colossians and Ephesians, 
gives just a little bit of time to the woman, but a lot more time to the men because it all hinges on the men. I still believe that in any local church, including this one, most things relationally, both inside the church and in the home, hinges with the men. The children are disobedient, I'll come looking for the father. If the wives are out of control, I'll come looking for the husband. That doesn't fit everybody's situation. I know we've got a whole uh, diverse group of situations in the church. I'm not blind. But generally, I'll talk to the men because they're the head. And often they'll say, it's not my fault. And I'll say, maybe so. But it's still your responsibility. Now, perhaps you still have some questions about this passage. Is Paul not advocating here an outdated chauvinism that believes that men are more important than women? I don't think he is. In fact, they would say he's not. After all, he wrote in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's way ahead of his time, actually. He regarded before society ever did that men and women are equal, equal in the eyes of God. To say that men and women are equal, of course, is not to say that they're identical. Any secular biologist can tell you that. We're equal, but not identical. So what is Paul getting at with his instruction uh, to wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord? What Paul is getting at, I hope, is much clearer when we understand the husband is supposed to be the servant leader in the home. You think about when I go to a clothing store, you know, I'm going to go buy a new sport coat. What inevitably happens is that person who's serving me makes this potential purchase out to be the most important decision I could ever make. You know, and I'm tempted to think, I must be pretty important. You know, this person serving me, after all, that's why they keep calling me sir, right? Serving others in almost every age has been regarded as a sign of weakness. But by contrast, Jesus is insisting that servanthood is the key to effective leadership. And Paul, by asking wives to submit, is warning wives of servant leaders not to exploit them, as if the service of the husband is a sign of weakness. When husbands lovingly serve their wives, they're honoring the role that God intended for them. And so we have Paul's exhortation to husbands, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I think a good example is from John 21. If you remember, Jesus asked the apostle Peter after uh, Peter had denied Jesus several times. He asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes. And each time Jesus' response is, feed my sheep. When Paul's admonishing husbands to love their wives, he's commanding more than roses, chocolates, and a kiss goodbye when you leave for work. He's calling husbands to loving service. And in this context, the warning against not becoming harsh with our wives makes sense. If we serve merely out of duty, as opposed to out of love, we'll eventually grow bitter towards the one we're serving. Any context, anywhere. If you're doing it because you're being made to do it, it's a matter of time till you get resentful and bitter. And that's true in marriage as well. And Paul calls the husbands to serve their wives out of loving concern for their spiritual well-being. That's the way that Christ 
loves the church. Christ didn't serve us because the Father made him serve us. The Son of Man came to serve us because he had a loving interest in the condition of our souls. And when we understand our need to model the behavior of Christ, both as husbands and wives, it becomes clear how we are to conduct ourselves in the other areas of life. Paul's admonition to children in verse 20 is pretty straightforward. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And the clear implication here is that if your child or your teenager runs your house, something's wrong. And maybe you've seen, I've seen countless situations where the household resembles union negotiations. The child promises to do chores A and B only if the parent provides rewards C and D. And Paul says children are to obey your parents not to earn a reward, not to get that next video game or be able to stay out later. He says simply because it pleases God. That's why you do it. It pleases the Lord. And a child who doesn't learn to obey his parents is not likely to grow up to obey any authority. He'll defy teachers, police, employers, and anyone who tries to exercise authority over him. The breakdown in authority in our society reflects the breakdown of authority in the home. For the most part, our children don't create problems. They reveal them. And parents who can't discipline themselves can't discipline their children. And if the father and mother are not under authority themselves, they can't exercise authority over others. Now I'm going to say something that's going to really annoy a bunch of you. I know because I have said this to the elders countless times. And it's a stereotype. So it's, it's sort of the rule and there's always exceptions. But when we confronted with issues, I have often said, problems with kids in the church are usually a parenting problem. Parenting problems are usually a marriage problem. And marriage problems are usually a Jesus problem. As I said, there's exceptions to the rule. The problem is everybody thinks they're the exception. You know, they'll agree with it, but not in my case. If a father and mother are not under authority themselves, they cannot exercise authority over others, and in particular, over their children. That's just a crucial principle. And Paul's aware, he goes on, he's aware that some will take that you-must-obey approach way too far. Thankfully, Paul balances the statement with children with instructions for the parents. Look at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, insisting that your child obey you is not the same thing as insisting they get straight A's. Insisting that your child obey you is not the same thing as insisting that your child scores in every soccer game. There's a balance to be struck between obedience and frustration. It's up to every set of parents to try and find that balance. And I'm not up here as one who's found that balance perfectly did sometimes missed it a lot. 
But Paul lays it out. There's a balance here. There's a balance in the husband and wife statements. There's a balance in the children and parents statements. And as if serving Christ at home isn't hard enough, he goes on to give us instructions about serving Christ at work. Look at verse 22, starting there. Serving Christ at work. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So finally, Paul addresses slaves and masters. So we have to bear in mind right from the start that slavery in the first century is quite different than the form of slavery we're familiar with in our own history or even the current forms of slavery that continue to exist in the world today. In the first century, you were either self-employed, you worked for the government, or you were a slave or a master. The employee-employee-employer uh, structure that's predominant in the world today simply didn't exist 2,000 years ago. <coughs> so when we read, slaves obey in everything those who are your er earthly masters, we should recognize that the instruction Paul gives here applies to all of us who are employees, whether for an individual or for a corporation. I'm not going to get too deeply in the whole issue of slavery because in a few weeks we're going to finish uh, Colossians and go into Philemon, and it deals with the issue much more extensively. For now, know that the Greek word translated here is literally bond servants. and is much more applicable to our understanding of people as employees. So what is Paul's message to Christian employees? Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He's saying Christians should be hard workers. In fact, we should be the hardest of workers. Not because we want uh, worldly recognition and not because we want more money. But we should be excellent employees because it honors Jesus. You know, there's a phrase common in some circles, particularly in this area. You may have heard it before. It's good enough for government work. In other words, the job isn't performed with excellence, but it's good enough for the low standards the government sometimes has. And for some of us, good enough represents our whole attitude towards life and work. But the Apostle Paul suggests the standard isn't good enough. The standard is excellence. In his book, The Winner Within, NBA coach Pat Riley, famous NBA coach, won a whole bunch of championships, got all kind of big rings. He wrote this book and he offers some insight on those who compromise excellence. He writes, I'm quoting, being a game player. That's the guy who like really shows up for the game. He says, being a game player is a fiction. Some people use to excuse themselves from working as hard as they should. People who think they're game players are what coaches call floaters. They float along on a cushion of talent or sheer physical size and strength. They don't see what all the fuss over concentration and work ethic is all about 
until players of lesser talent start scoring in their face quarter after quarter simply because they're more in tune with their game. Eventually, every team has to learn that excellence isn't a destination. It's a process that must be continually improved. Of course, NBA players and coaches are committed to excellence because they want to win championships. And corporate executives are committed to excellence because they want to please customers and increase profits. And those are all good motives. But a follower of Christ, the motive that drives us to excellence is a desire to please the one who will give us our final reward. Everything we do is supposed to be done with this uh, conscious awareness of his presence, a realization that he's watching. Now, for all of you fellow workaholics out there, this isn't your justification to work 12-hour days. You still have a spouse to love and serve. You still have children to raise uh, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, more nurture than admonition, but needs both. And you still have a church that needs your gifts and talents. And of course, not all of us are employees. There are some uh, who own their own business. Most of us are actually somewhere in between. We have a boss looking over us, but we also have people we're responsible to lead and manage. And Paul has a message for all of you as well. It comes in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That verse could easily be read as employers, treat your employees justly and fairly. Because the bottom line isn't how much money you make. The bottom line is whether you're doing your work heartily, whether you're treating others justly and fairly, whether you're motivated by your devotion to Christ. And so no matter what your role is, whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you're a child or a parent, a husband or a wife. I pray that you don't lose sight of the main point of this passage. As many of you know, I'm teaching preaching again at RTS Washington. And I do something that almost every class the students hate. We have this sort of, I call it our class mantra. And we have to say it all together. And it's the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. And they're all like, you know, little kids are all sitting there, of course, they're all like 28, you know, and they're all sitting there and they're like, the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. I was like, you hate this, the time you leave, you will never be able to forget it. And that's the point here. Because the main point isn't about a wife or a husband or a slave or a child or any of those things. The main point is about serving Christ fully. Serving Christ fully. I'm going to go back and pick up verse 17 because I think that's the controlling verse for our whole uh, section. And then verses 23 and 24, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. End of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. You could say, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. You are serving the Lord Christ. Husbands, love your wives. You are serving the Lord Christ. You could go through every one of those things. We have to understand, Christ can't be compartmentalized into just serving him on Sunday morning. Now, many of you serve on Sunday. We couldn't function without you. you serve in the nursery, children's church, Sunday school, setup, sound, music, reading, hospitality, ushering, counting, and we need you. 
But many more of you don't serve on Sunday. You show up assuming someone else is going to take care of all those other things. You need to sign up. Enough said. But this passage isn't about Sunday morning. It's really about all the other days of the week. Simply put, Jesus is not just the head of the church. He ultimately is supposed to govern the affairs of our home and our work. And if you only worship Christ within these walls, then essentially, however unintentionally, you blaspheme the name of Jesus in practice. And you blaspheme the name of Christ by suggesting through how you live that he is not the Lord of all things and he is not the Lord of my life. Now, earlier this week, I wrote to you, I do, we, who's ever preaching normally does a weekly thought, goes out in the email. Hopefully you read it most of the time. But I said this passage combines two very different concepts, love and authority. And it tells us they have to work in harmony in order to have successful relationships. And what does love look like? What does authority look like? Do they look like each other? The biblical notions of love and authority are closely related because authority is a trust, a stewardship for the benefit of others. But today we don't associate love and selflessness with authority. Similarly, today's definition of love has something to do with a, a freedom to make no lasting commitments. And that's not even remotely biblical. So what is it that enables us to tie these commitments together? In today's passage, Paul is describing what Christian love and authority really look like. He's just called the believers back in verse 14 to put love on and to live their entire lives to the glory of Christ in verse 17. And he's instructing them to have an attitude of submission to authority and to practice selflessness in the exercise of authority. And so these two qualities, submission and selflessness, I think are best seen in the person of Jesus Christ. I love the passage in Matthew 8. It's one of my favorite stories. The story of the centurion who had a servant who was ill. And he asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus says, well, let's go. Take me to him. And picking up in Matthew 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion saw Jesus as being the ultimate authority. He approached Jesus that way. And having that kind of understanding, Jesus said he hadn't seen anyone uh, with such great faith in all of Israel. And this type of understanding that there is a structure that God has designed and we need to function within that structure as an expression of our faith and trust in God. Submission is ultimately tied to God and it's tied to God because he's the one ultimately who's really in control. The exercise of authority on the part of husbands and parents and bosses is to be selfless servants. Husbands are to care for, cherish, take the initiative to understand, meet the needs of their wives, promoting their good. They're not to be harsh, embittered, careless about their choice of words and actions. So husbands, I'll ask you, what kind of leadership are you exercising? Do you know your wife's fears and her hopes? Do you have any goals for your marriage? 
Husbands have the privilege and the challenge to love their wives so that every day they look more and more beautiful. More and more like the Lord. Parents are to use authority in such a way as not to embitter or discourage their children. Children have been endowed with this natural desire, God-given desire to please their parents. And parents shouldn't be nagging or multiplying rules or holding perfectionist expectations. And they should notice and comment when they see growth and change and good in children. The purpose of parental authority is not to create perfect children, but to lead children to have a greater desire to know and love the Lord. Supervisors. There's always a temptation to squeeze a little bit more out of the workers. To see employees as a means to an end. Biblical counsel here is to treat them fairly and justly. Remember that you too are a slave to Christ. And your master has treated you with amazing kindness. Do you show favoritism? Does your supervision of others reflect uh, positively on the Lord? Perhaps you need to lighten their load by hiring more people. Perhaps you need to give more praise. We're to be selfless in the exercise of authority. Now, I understand if you're not a Christian, the instruction in this passage may seem naive, dangerous, like a justification for slavery and the inequality of women. Like it doesn't leave room for civil disobedience or uh, revolution against tyranny. (coughs) To you, I'd say, just please understand First, all earthly authority is corrupted. All earthly authority is tainted by sin. We can't put our hope in earthly authority. We can't put our hope in an upcoming election, any election at any level, or in any kind of program, any program, anywhere. And that's because our hope is in the one who is the perfect example of submission and the selfless exercise of authority. Jesus Christ submitted to and obeyed his father at the same time. He told his disciples he was the good shepherd. He said in John 10, uh, after, right after he had told them that I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep and they know me, he says, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He gave his life as a ransom for many, for sinners, taking the penalty we deserve, offering love and forgiveness to all who would put their trust in him. And we can submit to that authority here on earth because we first submit to him as the ultimate authority. The one who said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and in death. And it is that hope in Christ which enables us then to turn, be under authority, and obey his word, even in some of these hard areas. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Lord, these are hard words. These are convicting words. These are challenging words because we know that we can be selfish. 
And we know that we can misuse our authority. We know that sometimes we lack love and we can forget to forgive. And we need your grace. And we need your word to change our hearts, to change our attitudes, to change our words, to change our minds. So by your spirit, work your change in us and through us this morning. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, our only hope in life and in death. Amen.